Every year, our leadership with their spouses uh, gather to celebrate and to pray. We celebrate what we see God at work, where we see God at work in the past year. And then we pray, not just prayers of thanksgiving for the past, but we pray about the year ahead. And we had our second annual a few weeks ago, and I made a few observations to them. First, I made the observation the last summer, if you were with us, you can attest, last summer was a summer of momentum. If you weren't with us, we launched Hope Presbyterian Church on July 18th, and then we became official on the 19th of November. And so addition plus celebration equals momentum. But then I made a second observation, and it was this. This summer, this summer that we are in right now and kind of coming out of was not a season of momentum. We said goodbye, do you remember, to a lot of people. (laughs) And we didn't just lose people. It felt like we were losing Stan. And also, let's be honest, we didn't have the benefit of an immediate vision like a launch before us all summer. So I made this observation, no steam, no vision equals stagnation. Which brought me to my third observation. As a church leadership, we have two possible reactions to stagnation. Number one, pursue the illusion of safety. Or number two, pursue godly risk. And if I'm honest, everything in me wants safety and status quo. Uh, But I shared with them that God has clearly, clearly called our church into a season of risk. Not status quo. But that's super uncomfortable. Because we have a very smooth thing going. And I love it. And it also makes me wonder, why are we so comfortable with status quo? And uncomfortable with risk. And it's probably because risk invites failure. And we don't like to fail. We're Americans. And we don't. uh, Maybe it's because risk messes with stability. And we don't want to be knocked off balance. Ever. Edwin Friedman He's the family systems therapist who made an observation 30 years ago. In anxious times, people tend to herd together like cattle. (laughs) No offense, but scripture calls us sheep, so it's okay. The old farmer's almanac says, quote, and I'm quoting, if cows huddle, a bad storm is approaching. When clouds gather... We behave like cattle. That's Edwin Friedman's observation. And this is tempting, right? Nations do this. Families do this. Churches do this. Uh, When we are afraid, our tendency is to become like the musk oxen. If you don't know what that is, I brought a picture. Who huddle with their horns out. And that is tempting. To huddle with our horns out. That is super tempting. 
It's easy in a church context to baptize passivity and call it piety. Well, Nehemiah, for good or ill, is going to challenge this. He just is. If you look at verse 11 of chapter 1, you'll see a little aside. He says, now... I was cupbearer to the king. So here, after all the praying and fasting, we learn that Nehemiah is the cupbearer of Artaxerxes, the Persian king. And his job, as I said earlier, was to taste the wine to make sure it wasn't poisonous, which meant two things. Number one, he was beside the king all the time. In fact, that little detail about the queen sitting beside him, that probably means they were in a private setting. And so... Nehemiah, this exile from Judah, had constant companionship with the king, even in the most intimate places. But number two, what it meant is that he had immense pressure to keep a straight face. Think the, uh, the guards at the Buckingham Palace. Do you know what I'm talking about? They have immense pressure, and they're really good at it, at keeping a straight face. Their lives depended on it. In fact, it was very likely that when he showed his sadness in front of the face of Artaxerxes, when he showed his sadness, he was risking his life, because cupbearers are put to death for that kind of thing. That's very unprofessional and unsafe. In fact, that's why Nehemiah says, after the king notices, I was very afraid. He knew at that moment his life or his death depended upon his reaction, Artaxerxes. So notice that Nehemiah chapter 1 combines prayer with chapter 2, risk. They belong together in this book. Chapter 1 is one big prayer. Chapter 2 is one big risk. Moving into dangerous territory for God's sake. And we tend to divide these chapters in our hearts and in our minds. But Nehemiah combines them uncomfortably. So that what we get is a picture of godly risk. And so right here we learn that if prayer is an essential ingredient to renewal. So is godly risk. Now, what is godly risk? We can explore this section that we just read aloud to to find out. And the first thing is this. I'd like to, to suggest that godly risk is prayerful. The first thing we notice about Nehemiah's risk is that it is saturated in prayer. Godly risk is both prepped by prayer, as we saw last week in chapter 1. I mean, why does verse 1 of chapter 2 say the month of Nisan? Why is that information important? Well, if you contrast that with the month of Kislev in chapter 1, verse 1, you see that four months have passed since he found out the news. So Nehemiah has been praying and fasting and confessing for four months. And so this godly risk was not a whim. It was bathed or prepped in deep prayer, deep prayer. So godly risk is prepped with prayer, but it's also peppered with prayer. Did you notice when we were reading the text that that Nehemiah, uh, after the king is receptive to Nehemiah's request, uh, that he prays a quick prayer to God? 
so quick and so silent and so even imperceptible to the king. Listen, the king is paying close attention, close enough attention to notice the facial features of Nehemiah. He doesn't notice the prayer. Why? Because this was a quick prayer. A silent prayer. Little did King Artaxerxes know, but Nehemiah was talking to the true king, though in quiet, during this confrontation. And so risk has to be bathed in prayer, both prepped by prayer and also peppered by prayer in the very moment. Um, Sometimes I send my wife Josie a, a quick text with like all the vowels removed. You know those kinds of texts? I mean, some of you are really skilled in emojis. I'm less so. She's really good at them. But other times I write her long emails or long notes. Both are important. It's not an either or. Keeping constant contact through quick arrows of communication and also long intentional outpourings of communication is important in our marriage. The same is true of God. We should, let me just put it this way, we should email and text God. Both. I think a couple applications could could be challenging to us. And the first is this, I'd offer this. Let's, uh, as a church, dignify gasp prayers. Let me just explain. Derek Kidner, he calls Nehemiah's prayer in verse 4, So I pray to the God of heaven that after after the king asks him a question, he calls that prayer a gasp. A gasp. We don't think gasps are real prayers, do we? But it is. Let's dignify it. I mean, you will need it when you are taking a risk for God. I think some of the most popular gasp prayers in my experience are help sorry wow and thanks and you can just shoot those words straight on up to the almighty and let's dignify that I think secondly, though, this text challenges us to prepare for risk with prayer. If you're going to make a godly risk in any relationship in your life, whether it be with God, in your sense of calling, whether it be at work, whether it be with your neighbor, perhaps it's a vocation, whatever it is, a godly risk, bathe that risk with preparation and prayer and bring others into it. So in the cooking world, uh, there's a term called mise en place. You know what that means, mise en place? I think it's French for everything in its place. I'm taking that by faith because I don't know French. But uh, mise en place means everything in its place. It's making sure all the ingredients are cut up and measured and in the right place before you start cooking. One of the most important things, if you want to start learning to cook, I learned this myself, is to read the whole recipe first. And then look at the, look at the ingredients and chop up and do all the prep first. And then get the cooking going. So yesterday, I made a, uh, a stir-fry. And the mise en place process took an hour. Just chopping vegetables ad nauseum. The cooking took five minutes. See prayer as the mise en place of risk. 
lay it all out, and bring it before God. Which takes us to the second point. Godly risk is prayerful, but it is also prepared. It's also prepared. Uh, So, notice, Nehemiah did not just walk up to the king and wing it. He did not just walk up to the king and wing it. He had a very thought-through strategy. And so, listen, strategy is not always sin. It can be. We can totally rely on our own strength and our own wisdom and our own wit and, and kind of course of, like a path in life on our own thinking. And we could call that strategy. And that would be incredibly sinful. But not because it's strategy, but because it's self-reliant. Strategy, as Nehemiah shows us, can be a very, very faithful thing. You know, every time I prep a sermon, I'm praying, God, make this strategically helpful in the lives of my people. I don't just come up here and wing it. And I see that with Nehemiah as a profound act of preparation. And so if you have strategy and faithfulness, strategy and prayer divided in your worldview, then put them together. They don't belong that way. With Nehemiah, he's prepared with all kinds of things. He's, he's strategically, with strategy, uh, he, he provokes the king in verses 1 through 10. So when he shows his sad face, it is very clear that that's not on accident, but that's on purpose. Because remember, he has been mourning and weeping and confessing for four months. So it's very clear to me that he puts on his straight face when he goes to work. But there's a moment, there's a moment where he says, I'm going to strategically provoke Artaxerxes by showing my emotions. He shows strategic deference in verse 3, where he, where he basically says, he says, um, he says, let the king live forever. He shows strategic cultural literacy in verse 3. If you take a look, Nehemiah is with it enough to know that the Persian Empire has pressed stop on the building effort in Jerusalem. He's with it enough to know that, and therefore Nehemiah doesn't say Jerusalem. Do you notice his answer in verse 3? Then I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the city, doesn't say Jerusalem. And then he personalizes it. As Derek Kidner puts it, he gets personal, not political. He is with it enough to know that if he were to say Jerusalem, it would trigger an immediate political response from King Artaxerxes. He's strategic. He says, the city that I grew up in, that I love, this city, how could I not be sad? He has cultural literacy. He shows strategic specificity in verses 5 through 8. When given the window, he names specific times. He names specific names. He names specific places. He even has a specific building plan. He wants wood. He wants timber. And so just imagine, in the thought experiment right now, imagine if Artaxerxes said to Nehemiah, okay, yeah, what do you want to do? And Nehemiah just said, I... I I don't really know. I'm going to figure it out when I get there. I have a feeling our exercises would be like, taste my wine. (laughs) But he had a plan and he laid it out. 
So he's prepped with strategy. He's also prepped with flexibility. Because Nehemiah was strategically prepared, he could be flexible. So Nehemiah doesn't just unload his plane on the front end. He doesn't just go in and unload it. But if you remember, if you look... The king asks a question, and Nehemiah responds. The king asks a question, and Nehemiah responds. The king asks a third question, and Nehemiah responds. And so Nehemiah is demonstrating a tact and a flexibility with whatever the reaction is from the king. He's not just unloading his plan. He's flexible. I have a friend who used to lead dangerous outdoor trips, and he said it helps to have a specific plan and then be flexible when life happens. And so we see this in this text as well. Nehemiah clearly had a plan, but he was rolling with it. He was rolling with the punches. And I think thirdly, he is prepared with integrity. So he's prepared with strategy. He's prepared with flexibility. And finally, the king would not have green-lighted Nehemiah's request if Nehemiah did not show integrity in his life. Do you think? In Jeremiah, God tells his exiled peoples to love the city and to seek its peace or its shalom, its flourishing. In other words, it's our job to do, as Dorothy Sayers puts it, good work, well done. It's our job as we are in exile of sorts, waiting for Jesus to come and fulfill his kingdom promises and their fullness, to do our jobs well, with integrity. And Nehemiah seems to be doing that. And that helps. He takes a risk. And he can because he's been preparing to take that risk with his integrity intact. So let me just encourage you to live... And if you're with us for a while, you know this is coming. Just a matter of time. This is a two-by-two grid. Let's live in quadrant number one as a church. Quadrant number one, because most of the time we spend our time in quadrant four, quadrant two, don't we? We tend to spend our time in sort of this idea that, hey, all we need to do is get into our prayer closets and sort of pray and pray and pray, and then God will move. And that's certainly true. Others of us go down to the second quadrant and all we are doing is just cranking out church or cranking out our life plans in our own strength and with our own wisdom. And then we come to Sunday church and we sort of get our religious fix and we ask God how he fits into our plans. But Nehemiah is going to press us into that uncomfortable first quadrant and say that you are going to come to me and plead with me and contend with me and be strategic and take risks and see me move in that space. All right. Thirdly, godly risk is providential. And what I mean by that is that godly risk rests on the providence of God. It's the only and it's the firmest foundation for true risk taking. What is providence? It's the truth that everything in life comes to us from the scarred hands of Jesus. Nehemiah references the providence of God in the very last verse of our section when he says, The good hand of my God was upon me. He didn't know that that good hand would one day have scars on it, though.
Nehemiah says all this good stuff happened, not because of his wit, but because of this hand. He could have been very proud of his achievement. But he gives glory to God. Later in Nehemiah, Nehemiah doesn't experience success. He experienced the jeering and the humiliation, the taunting. And we're going to see that as we approach the further chapters down the line. He experiences a lot of setback, a lot of suffering. And even in those moments, he shows confidence in God's providence. Let's do a thought experiment for a minute. Um, imagine you're on a soccer team. And now imagine that you can get into a time machine and see the results of your upcoming game. And when you do that, you see that you win. Now, go back in time. Do you think you will take more risks or less risks based off that knowledge? I predict you would joyfully take more risks. So where is your focus this morning? Is your focus on your hands or on the hand of God? You will find that if your focus is on your hands, then you will not take risks. Because you know how much these hands make a mess of things. But if your focus is on the providential hand of God, as one pastor puts it, the ground or the power of your being able to take a risk on campus or at your school or at work or an unreached people group or individually in some way, the ground or the power of that ability to take a risk is because your God knows exactly what's coming. And He works it all and controls it all so that you can take the risk because He doesn't. Risk in God's name because you can't lose. In the long run, He will make all things right. That's the big idea. You might fail, but you won't lose. Finally. Martin Luther King Jr., he said this. He said, The ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience but where he stands in times of challenge and controversy. The true neighbor will risk his position, his prestige, and even his life for the welfare of others. And this is only possible, this vision of risk, of costly risk, it's only possible when you first see that Jesus gave up his position, his prestige, and his life for our welfare. We are beat up on the side of the street and Jesus is the good Samaritan who risked everything for that man's life. And Jesus does that for us. And because we are in the good, scarred hands of King Jesus. We can risk it all. Lord, we come to you this morning and we ask that you would 
challenge us with Nehemiah's risk. 